0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey Andrew. Hey Chris. So,
1: have you heard of the Rapture? They were uh alt rock band in the
0: 90s. <laughs> were they? Or maybe the early 2000s, yeah. Really? There was a band called The Rapture? Yeah. Oh. Have you heard about the the religious rapture? Um do you know what that yes. Is?
1: Yes, that those are end times. Mm-hmm. Um is that like uh the book of Revelation and And do you the know what happens? Times?
0: Do you know what happens or will happen during the rapture? Do you know how it kind of will go down and and sort of Modern idea of, of how it'll happen
1: doesn't. Uh, sweet baby Jesus come down. He mm-hmm. puts daisy chains on everyone's harnesses, <laughs> and then everyone dies because they don't know how to use them.
0: <laughs> he also shoots daggers out of his eyes. Don't forget that part. <laughs> um, no, but what I was talking about is that, like that, um, that show the the others or the forgotten or the left behinds or something. Oh, the uh, departed. Yeah. The departed or something where all of a sudden just the faithful disappear mm-hmm. and leave the rest of us to uh, the remnants the remnants to uh to have, live in a progressive world yeah um without them well what would happen what do you think would happen i want to <laughs> i want to do a thought experiment around um climbing <laughs> the climbing culture okay what do you think would happen if suddenly every single professional climber was suddenly raptured and we were left just us like groveling normal people in the climbing world what how do you think that Mm -hmm. would affect the climbing culture what what in other words like what do they bring that we couldn't live without or could live without Mm -hmm. if all the professional climbers every single one of them were raptured to you know i don't know where just we don't it's not important where they went yeah um, doesn't have to be a fiery hell eternal or, hell or, or
1: <laughs> that's actually important to me that they that they all end up in endless, a fiery burning uh, hell
0: right if they're in a fiery burning <laughs> hell it's one thing or they're in like a, a, a heavenly place of endless tufas um <laughs> but <laughs> but it's really hot because it's in the tufas. sun <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> anyhow wh- wh- what do you think like how would we go forward like what what do they bring to the climbing community that we couldn't live without or can live without do you think have you ever thought about yeah, this yeah like what it's a what good question what input do they have like why do they have to exist is i guess my, my real question
1: <laughs> well do you want i i'm gonna give a, a genuine answer to your yeah, question no, okay
0: i want a genuine answer okay it was just a, a silly way to think about what might happen
1: my first uh thought is that 20-year-old Andrew would be sad about that because 20-year-old Andrew was, like, psyched on the, you know, the Chris Sharmas and the Lisa Rands and the, you know, those Dave Grahams and all those folks who were, you know, just felt like it was they were just, like, changing the sport and left and right and doing the hardest thing in the world. And there's so much, like, buzz and cool stuff about it. But now everything just kind of feels flattened in a way. Like, it's hard to know, like, what the hardest thing even is anymore like i don't know because everyone's climbing so hard so i don't know there's just like less there's less like heroes there's less like demigods walking among us so i would say i would just go about my life um living vicariously through climbing media um because i can't climb right now what's climbing media
0: gonna be about then
1: that's a good question i guess it would be pretty bad it would be like all amateur
0: hour (laughs) i think it would be bad you think i mean isn't that what like instagram is anyway it's just our our modern version of amateur hour Yeah, but
1: we hate instagram do we i do okay i hate instagram i mean and that's probably a big part of it is that it's all just amateur hour so i don't know I see what you're saying. I mean, like, what do they bring to the table? Like, they're yeah, supposed they the their, their their job description is supposed to be like ambassador, you know, for mm-hmm. the companies that pay them lots of money to be the, their ambassador. And I'm sure that that's gotten more defined over the over time. Like, it used to just be like, go do whatever you want, smoke weed, and climb hard, you know. But mm-hmm. now it's like, oh, you have to like go to all these events and like not say anything dumb that's going to get us canceled on social media and like just try to do like a little bit of hard climbing once in a while um (laughs) and like take some pretty pictures about it that's kind of like the job
0: description at this point
1: but yeah i don't know i mean what what do we lose without that you know I, I i guess not much
0: well and the question i i have is like is it's sort of a of a existential kind of thing but we sort of expect all the best climbers to be professional climbers but that expectation is all often never been met mm-hmm. in two ways a lot of times the professional climbers aren't the best climbers which you know since the beginning of time has caused lots of consternation where people have like however they could back before social media they would would try to flame them you know at least among their bros because you know oh, i know this guy that's not sponsored and he climbs way harder than that guy or that girl or whatever so that's always been going on that sometimes the hardest climbers aren't the professional climbers. <clears throat> but then the question I have is, would these people who represent the highest, with with the Adam Andras of the world, would they, you know, in this paradigm where there's no professional climbing, would they have risen to the top anyway? You know, or, or, oh, or does being a professional allow them to excel at a performance level that they wouldn't if they had to like, hang drywall during the week or um do these other things. I mean, being able to climb all the time seems to probably equate to being a better climber. Right. And yet within the the ranks of amateurs, we can point out, you know, over the years some really great climbers who are also work a day people. Um, right you know, I don't think Randy Levitt, for example, was, you know, he had these sponsorships, but he doesn't jump out to me as as someone who who was like a totally professional climber all the time, and he's you know currently independently wealthy through his own ingenuity, and yet he was for the longest time probably the best American climber there was. So it's not like one for one kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Do
1: you think that the the highest grades that we've achieved in this world would be met in your um, in your fantasy world? Like would. Whatever it is, like now fifteen D or something like V sixteen, V seventeen. Would those grades have been reached in this in this new world without uh, the professional climbing game as as part of our sport? Eventually, eventually. But do you think we'd be at that level now? Hmm,
0: probably not. Yeah. So I guess that sort of answers the question. Yeah. In some ways, but that's but that goes back to the to the 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 original idea of these of these folks disappearing, like, wouldn't we eventually achieve it anyway? I mean, before professional climbers existed almost at all, there was a natural progression, you know, through the 60s and through the 70s and through the 80s up through the grades. So it's, it's pretty easy to think that at least maybe at a slower pace that, that would continue. Mm Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes the professionals set these these levels, and quickly behind are the amateurs achieving them as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and certainly there's Spanish bomberos and things like that. You know, these guys that work as firemen or whatever. You know, I think that's a pretty chill schedule um, right. in Spain. Uh, <laughs> but that climb, you know, at the nine A level or harder than that. Right. Um, so it can be achieved, maybe just not as quickly. Would yeah. be my guess.
1: I think that. I think a uh like an enormous part of of um success in climbing comes down to genes and you know, I think that a lot of like the really, really best climbers in the world are often climbing like five fourteen in a year or something like that. And um and so it stands to reason that they could like balance other things in their life, like they could go to you know, do TPS reports in an office somewhere and, and still still you know be like sick crushers yeah and the the whole professional game is like kind of weird too because as you were saying it's like not a perfect meritocracy and i don't know if it was ever supposed to be but it's just become less and less at least like this like illusion that or just this like lie that we buy into happily you know Mm -hmm. as more people become you know kind of jockey for positions or carve out little niches for themselves to be special in uh, climbing that you know, for reasons that aren't, uh, just about like, you know, putting up the hardest grades or whatever.
0: So they also perform this other duty, Mm -hmm. right. Which is, is also part of my rapture analogy is, you know, they, they quote unquote inspire us, right. Isn't that one of the things they're supposed to do? And I think you as a 20 year old would agree with that. Yep. But is that essential to our like drive and climbing? Because I, I, it's funny because when you said that I started thinking about who I was into when I started climbing and it wasn't kind of at that level. I was I was more into these historical people like Leighton Core. Mm-hmm. And so I found this place to find inspiration just out of these legendary people that were never professionals mm-hmm. but have had made their way into the lore. Right. And since I wasn't a sport climber necessarily and you know, media was what it was in nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety. I don't, I don't think there was that component for me necessarily that I had the posters and things like that.
1: Well, I think that we're both pointing to like a richness of storytelling. Like maybe, um, I think what inspired me was like there, there was more of a story and build up around Big Sense. I think twenty years ago than there is now, um, where it's just like all of a sudden you just like flip on open Instagram and see that someone did something new and you've never heard of it before. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't even know they were trying it. And it, it's just like blasted on the feed, you know, and then it, right. that's it. Um, but I think that there was like more, there was like more of an aura, um, even like in these early videos or just in photos and magazine stuff, there was, there was like coverage of about, um, people who are trying to do something and it was like this one person who's trying to do something hard and it kind of had this, it had an aura around it. And so it made Mm -hmm. you interested and excited to, to follow along in that, in that story. Um, and I guess that probably does happen today too, but it just feels like diluted.
0: Yeah. But would my climbing life had been that much different without these folks? And the thing is is that um there are companies out there and I I think I've mentioned this on the show but notoriously um Ivan was never down with having like a climbing team mm-hmm. for Patagonia like that was something that that went on sort of under his grumbling because he didn't he didn't understand the or understand the value of it mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me because I I'm also not clear necessarily on the value of it because I mean, I, I guess it gets people hyped, and they buy and they buy equipment. Someone like Alex Honnold. Mm-hmm. But if we take if we if we like don't look at the top of the game, but we look at sort of the the middle level kind of sponsored climbers, like I don't know. I I just wonder what the what the quote unquote the ROI the the return on investment is mm-hmm. for sponsored climbers and kind of what they bring to the culture. Right. Is sort of yeah. That's that's sort of my. I guess my question here is not really like, oh, are they climbing the hardest things? Because things would all get climbed. I mean, there was, you know, the first hundred years of alpinism had no sponsorships to speak of and shit got climbed. Some of the greatest climbs of all time got climbed, you know, mm-hmm. without what we see as this necessary support. The nose of El Cap, not sponsored climbers, you know, stuff like that. The South Day Wall, not sponsored climbers. So, Shit, like monumental shit got done without this framework of, of supporting these best of the best climbers. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I like Alex Honnold's framing on this question. Cause he's always, I mean, to him, like a professional climber should just be someone who sends a the NAR, you know, and you kind of know what that <laughs> means. Like, and, um, I think that he really does view all of the kind of success that he's enjoyed and the, the professional opportunities he's had, as a nice to have, but not a necessary to have. And I think you kind of get the sense that he would be doing what he's doing anyway, without all of that. Um, and that's kind of the paradigm, I think with a sponsored climber, you know, as a profession. And of course, I think that maybe this question arises in a context of like, there's a lot of people for whom that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. And, and that's seems problematic because they're, they're kind of selling like a a fakeness, you know, or they're, even to themselves, like they're kind of like, I'm sure full of self doubt. And like, why am I, you know, why is this company giving me a money right now? <laughs> I've heard that from so many people, Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, friends of mine. And yeah. Like, I guess, I, I mean, guess, they keep sure.
0: renewing my contract. It's cool.
1: But then it becomes, I think for some people, it does kind of like fuck up their relationship with climbing too. Like, I think that they, you know, get, Um, they feel the like pressure to perform and that can have, they can spiral down into some like dark corners too, for them. And, and climbing can kind of become this like negative thing that they don't really want to be a part of anymore. But then of course, what are they going to do? Like hang up their, you know, their job at the North face or whatever the company is and go, you know, pound nails. And so, you know, that's like they're kind of like stuck. You know what I mean? I know a few people like that anyway.
0: Well, also, you know, I I know plenty of people who like, at least actively say that they, they don't pay attention to any of it. And there's actually almost this like hostility towards like the professional media end of climbing. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you felt that?
1: Yeah. That's always struck me as kind of like a too cool for school thing to say. Like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like you kind of know that they're lying you know of course they pay attention but they just don't care i don't know what, i don't know why people say that it's like they're trying to position themselves and uh, above above you for even asking that question or something well
0: you know how sports well it's it's changed it's changed a lot and probably in the right way you know with a lot of sports that had these amateur categories you know and the olympics was famous for you had to be an amateur um to be an olympian and and <clears throat> it was it was kind of a you know, became a mess. And we realized that the best athletes weren't there. And so they started to make all these exceptions. And I think college sports are the same way where where these people are forced to to be amateurs and, and uh, not take any money while these schools make a ton of money. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's this whole mess that's also getting worked out with the image and likeness uh, rule changes and stuff like that. But in climbing, we actually, we also revere this amateurism Mm -hmm. you know we it's it's almost like that is in fact the culture Mm. because the the culture is that you climb for yourself right you've heard that a thousand times like you don't climb for the camera you don't climb for this you climb for yourself and the culture is this idea that we're all out there we're all the same we're all doing this for the love and 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 it's kind of weird how like the professional climber sort of is hovers above that mm-hmm. you know what i mean and literally some of them hover above it and that you will literally never see them in the dirt at indian creek or at the crag right. you know they sweep in with their with their crew they shoot their videos and they're gone to get and their drone you're shots left, like standing in like six inches of snow the next morning because <laughs> you couldn't afford to get the fuck out of there or go to a <laughs> hotel or whatever and that's like this weird thing where it's like they're supposed to represent the sport, and yet they a, a lot of the professionals definitely do not grovel the way that we revere the dirt bag and the the sort of amateur end of the sport and i that's why I think that if they just suddenly all disappeared, I think most people's climbing experience wouldn't actually change very much right and it may in fact change for the better because at least you know the sport would sl- s- somewhat go back underground, yeah. <laughs> Right. To a certain extent, but do you know what I'm getting at? Is how they're they're kind of not part of us, mm-hmm. and in fact, when when they when they are, you know, when someone's like, "Oh yeah, I saw Alex and he was just chilling," or actually the the better examples that I hear from everybody is, and even you is is uh, the Hubers right? right in Camp Four. I, I just God, who did I just talk to that that said that, that they rolled into Camp Four and like. Tomas came to them and said, Hey, can I crash in your site? Because I don't have a site and you guys only have five people or something. And I I need a place to stay, you know, and that endeared this guy to Tomas Huber. I can't remember who it was, but it doesn't matter anyway. But it was like, I hear so many stories like that. And that was like this whole different vibe that I think most people see professionals as not like hanging out with the rest of us. Right, and I think that's changed. I think that's sort of a new paradigm.
1: Well, the other interesting thing about that is that you are so—I mean, I think both of us are kind of endeared to Tomas Huber for m- numerous reasons. Uh, that uh, being among them, reasons, starting but with the
0: leather pants. But...
1: None of that, <laughs> none of none of that endearment and none of our admiration and respect and love for him is ever going to translate into us buying a fucking Adidas jacket. <laughs> 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 is-,
0: <laughs> <laughs> <True>. <laughs> is he adidas
1: i don't know i mean i think i, I just not. assume so right <laughs> it doesn't matter whatever it is like i don't right whatever it is that he's you know rapping, i'm not i don't care you know because that's right. not why i like him and the company is lucky that he you know, is, is a part of their team and they can bask in his, his aura and glow, but it doesn't, I mean, I'm going to buy a j- the jacket I want to buy. I'm going to buy the shoes that I want to buy. And right. it's not going to be influenced by the athlete that I love most who, who tells me that this is a great product. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, the fact that we don't even know <laughs> who sponsors them <laughs> is probably like, you know, that, that's, that tells the whole story. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> totally. But yeah, so I, I don't know. It's I think that if I think that if they raptured out of here, we'd probably all be fine. Mm-hmm. I guess is my point. I mean, not that I want like Jonathan Segris to just disappear from the face of the earth because I love him and he's a really sweet guy. But you know, it's it, it's more of a it, like I said, it's it's not about the personalities, but about the paradigm of what professional climbing means to climbing and whether, on the whole, it's a positive or on the whole, it may be a negative.
1: I think everyone should be a professional climber once in their life, Chris. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just for at least a few. I mean, try it. Just, just try for it out. Just a minutes. Just try it Check out. Check it out.
1: See what it's like. And uh, yes. if you don't like it, you can always go back to your job. <laughs> <laughs> Adrian Bollinger is a mountain guide and owner of Alpenglow Expeditions. He has guided Everest numerous times, made the first ski descent of Makalu, and has climbed both Everest and K2 without oxygen.
0: So I'm I'm not an armchair Martin, I'm an office chair Martin. It's a big difference. It's a fine line, but it's it's an important one.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I'll remember that. <laughs>
1: All right, so we are here with uh, the great Adrian Bollinger, um, <laughs> who I want to, before we get started, I just want to salute him for walking into the lion's den of the Runout podcast, which has been hostile to all the things he cares about in life. Except uh, for his wife. Except we're for not, his
0: wife. Yeah. We're not hostile towards her. No. no <laughs> or his job. Huge John. fans. <laughs> just his crew. <career>. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, you,
1: uh, Adrian's a, as a friend of, of ours and, uh, but we, we, um, here at the run out, we've critiqued, you know, 8, the 8,000 meter guided climbing scene quite heavily over the years. And, uh, as a avid listener, Adrian's been on the other end, just having to grit his teeth and in, in silence while, um, while we just smear everything
0: that he cares about in this world. and Well, well, two office chair mountaineers, uh, <laughs> Uh, it it definitely
2: has not been in silence (laughs) emily harrington my wife always knows when i'm listening because i'm just yelling into the sky my thoughts and opinions (laughs) shaking your fist
1: no it's um it's been fun it's a you're you're a, a wonderful um sparring partner to talk about these things with and we've exchanged fun text messages and voice memos and stuff and just shared ideas and um and yeah, so welcome to the show, Adrian. At long last, you get to have your, your say and defend your ideas. So uh, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I think I'm lucky to be on to talk about maybe 8,000-meter peaks instead of D-bars and rifle climbing and uh, climbing grades, subjects that I shouldn't be speaking about but try to. So.
0: Perfect. Um, But yeah, maybe we could just start with, you know, just introducing yourself and making sure we understand why your opinions are, are far more qualified than ours are or at least you're more qualified to have an opinion about these things than we do. So yeah, maybe just talk about your um, your work you do, your climbing in, in the Himalayas and things like that.
2: Sure. So yeah, my name's Adrian Ballinger. I'm the founder of a guide company called Alpenglow Expeditions and an IFMGA mountain guide. So Alpenglow is based out in Lake Tahoe, California, but we guide all over the world. And the Himalaya has really been a big part of My focus since the late 90s when I went for the first time and, you know, slowly building up through the altitudes where, you know, some of my first trips were on 6,000 meter peaks or 20,000 foot peaks and then finally 7,000 meter peaks. And then in 2007, I began going to the 8,000 meter peaks, starting with Cho U and then Everest. Uh, Ever since, I've pretty much been spending every spring and fall in the Himalaya up until uh, I'm in my son was born last this past year that's kind of uh shifted things a little bit and i'm also as well as a mountain guide you know i'm a big mountain skier and climber sponsored by black diamond and uh, really have a lot of passion for my own projects in the big mountains and uh you know so I, I'd like to think I come at these things, one from the sort of mountain guide side, but then also having you know my own passions and ideas of like style and purity and things like that that go into you know having my own desires in the Himalaya.
1: Why don't um, Well, one thing I, I think is worth mentioning a, f- a few things actually. One, I think it's worth just acknowledging that, you know, you're going to, you work for your own guiding company and we're, during this conversation, we're going to be talking about other guiding companies. And I just wanted to put, put it on the table that they whatever, uh, opinions you have, I think you're going to come at them in the best faith possible and not from a, a, a way of trying to bury your competitors, um, or at least critique them. So I, I, I you know what I mean? I just want to lay that out, lay those cards I've... on the table.
2: Absolutely. No one should consider me an unbiased voice in this conversation. Um, I'm biased because I believe in mountain guiding and non-professional climbers going to the biggest mountains in the world. I think it's good for people, for communities in the planet uh, when done well. And then obviously I have very strong feelings about what when done well means. Um, So yes, I am biased.
1: Yeah, and I'll also lay some of my cards on the table too, which is um, as as critical as I've been of the of guiding eight thousand meter peaks, particularly Everest. I, I do find your approach to be quite cut above um, a lot of the other companies, and just you're you know, I think that our conversations have helped me understand where you you're coming from in terms of you know guiding from the north side and as opposed to the Khumbu Icefall on the south side, which I think is just ethically indefensible in my opinion. Um, and so you're trying to, you know, take a different approach to guiding, I think, than a lot of other outfitters out there. So, um, so that's, uh, you know, I, I want to put that out there too, that, um, I have a lot of respect for the way that you are running your business.
2: Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I've obviously been so lucky to be brought into this sport through a series of mentors that I have a lot of respect for and had a lot of respect for the mountains. Uh, Chris Warner, the founder of Earth Treks first, and then Russell Bryce, the founder of Himalayan Experience, who I worked with for years on Everest and other 8,000 meter peaks. You know, so I think I, I I've been fortunate to develop a philosophy of how working on these mountains uh, can be done with a, relatively high degree of safety while not removing risk um, and with a certainty that we can leave the mountains you know cleaner than we found them and we can support local communities and bring money into these places and give good safe employment on the mountains and so those are kind of foundational pillars that i think about in our guiding and i think You know, this is one of my kind of soapbox issues more and more today. What we hear about when we look at the marketing around 8,000-meter peak climbing, it's about 100% success and never give up and um, things like this. And those things are either just flat-out lies from marketing or they're incredibly dangerous and impractical ways to approach big mountains. I think it takes a lot of humility. And it's interesting when we discuss potential clients joining our groups where we're like well our summit rate over 13 seasons on mount everest is right around 50 you know and that's a lot less than 100 um you know and a lot of people walk away at that point but the ones that stay i think truly understand what they're getting and why they're signing up with
0: us which 8,000 meter peaks are sort of on the list uh at your company and which which ones have you personally guided do it on the summit with with clients or guests, sorry, with guests. Yeah, so yeah. Guess,
2: uh, clients, uh... Is, clients is fine. Okay. <laughs> clients, <laughs> members, uh, climbers, all of those words work. Uh, so um, Mount Everest has been a foundational part of the program. I've guided 13 seasons on Mount Everest. The first eight were on the south side, so I have a lot of experience on the south side. And that experience ultimately Led me to choosing to move to the north side of the mountain in 2015 and now spent five seasons on the north side before COVID shut everything down. So I've summited eight times, you know, helped probably somewhere in the vicinity of 50 climbers reach the summit safely and, and return back down, uh, over those expeditions. Then I've also guided Monasloo for four years, but decided it was not a safe mountain to bring non-professional climbers to. I guide Makalu, Cho And my company now guides the Gashibrams, Gashibram 1 and Gashibram 2, but I have not yet been myself.
1: So let's talk about this um, recent event, which is a real tragedy of all the, it's just, it's an interesting tragedy. It's a terrible tragedy, of course, um, but it's interesting in that it brings in a lot of themes that are get brought up in the conversation around eight thousand meter climbing and especially you know eight thousand meter records and and guiding those uh, those summits. Um, so just a quick recap: uh, there's two American women, Gina. Um, I can't pronounce her last name, but I think it's Rusidlo. Is that? I'm not sure if you have any insight. I have know. not
2: met her, so I'm not sure.
1: So Gina Rusidlo and Anna Gutu. So we'll just call them Gina and Anna. Two American women um, both vying to become the first American women to do all 14 8,000-meter peaks uh, with oxygen, but um, no American woman apparently has done that yet. And um, they found themselves in this interesting situation where they both had Shishapangma left. They were both poised to try to summit on the same day, and so it turned into this kind of competitive race to, to be the first to get to the top. Um, unfortunately, uh, both those women and the Sherpas that were guiding them, uh, died in two separate avalanches on the same day, about 30 minutes apart from each other. The fallout from all of this is a lot of people are talking about this kind of toxic competition between them. And if that had an influential, played some kind of, um, tragic influence on their decision making that day on the mountain. The uh, the other interesting thing to to note is that Gina was climbing with Tenjin Lama, who is had recently just be been in the news with because he helped um Kristen Harilla do the fourteen eight thousand meter peaks in three months, and um which is you know the new record, besting Nims Purjals record, uh, which you know the the more famous record that was you know you can see in the Netflix documentary a lot of people are familiar with it for, through that but this guy Tenzing was a badass sherpa and he 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 was with um Gina she had kind of hired him outside of the outfit that she was with and because she viewed him as like the strongest sherpa climber the best chance that she had to to beat Anna to the to the summit so where does that leave us uh Adrian i mean like what what was your initial re- um reaction to to hearing this story and kind of peeling apart some of the layers uh, behind it?
2: Yeah. uh, You know, I mean, first of all, of course, sadness for everyone involved and everyone's families, right? We've all been through losing people in the mountains and know the grief involved with that and, and uh, the pain that everyone's experiencing. And so, you know, that's of course important to remember. I think also, you know, Remembering that we absolutely were not there. Uh, you know, Chris was joking about the armchair of Mountaineer before. I mean, for this season, since I'm home hanging with Arrow, I'm also an armchair Mountaineer this season. And so I do want to remember that, that I wasn't there. I can't see the avalanche conditions that actually existed. I can't say exactly what call I might have made on the mountain, but uh, of course, it's important to look at an accident like this, especially as more information comes out and more accounts come out from different people and try to figure out what we can learn. Because it does seem that some portion of this accident may have been preventable through different decision-making. Uh, it's hard to imagine how it couldn't have been. And so, you know, my my initial reactions we well, like, what the fuck happened, right? <laughs> like, how could this be two separate acts, two separate avalanches on a mountain that's known to be very avalanche prone? And since I had friends on other peaks in Tibet at the same time, I know how unstable the weather had been in the week leading up to that summit push. So it does seem like there was probably a lot of fresh snow and a lot of wind. Um, a time when I think you know, maybe many expedition leaders may have chosen not to have their people on the mountain. So that's something that I think about. But I do also think it's important to say, like, you know, I, I, I believe in people taking risk on mountains and climbing. And I believe in people taking outsized risk sometimes in the mountains. That's how truly you know, audacious accomplishments are often achieved in the big mountains, and so it's easy for us to sit and say that you know, Gina and Anna weren't experienced enough, or something like that, to make to to go after something very audacious. But I disagree with that. I don't think we should choose. You need a certain amount of experience before you can take outsized risk in the mountain. And uh, so, I, I honestly have no problem with Gina and Anna taking risk and choosing. You know, whatever motivated them is it a record of 14 peaks is it uh just one peak like we all have different goals but racing to do multiple peaks in a row or racing to be the fastest on the mountain like an fkt those things have been going on for generations and they're much loved and respected in the climbing world. I mean, out there was just a film on Netflix of Uli, you know, trying to st- before he passed, setting the record in the Alps to climb all the 4,000 meter peaks as fast as possible. Um, it happens in Yosemite, right? Linking up the nose and Mount Watkins and, uh, and half dome, like racing to do link ups is rad. And if that inspires someone, I think they should go after it. So my issue is not with their decision-making. But I think as soon as there's a monetary component, as soon as we dive into hiring other people to support us, and there's a commercial profit motive, that's where responsibility comes in. So that's where I think we have to explore, is like, were the Sherpa decision-makers in a position to say no, turn around, things like that? They were very experienced. I don't have any thought that they didn't know exactly what risk they were going up into. But then the level beyond that is the expedition leader and the company. And that's where I see responsibility in situations like this lying is like the kind of needs to be in some of these situations. And I've seen it over and over and over again in the big mountains. There needs to be kind of the adult in the room, for lack of a better word, the person without a lot of emotion involved in the individual goal that is willing and able to say no. And that's where I'm interested in learning more.
0: I mean, is there any sort of fulcrum Decisions, or um, you know, things that you're seeing come out in the information that are making you kind of raise your eyebrows.
2: There's a lot of sort of mulling in the media over whether the two companies were competing as much as, or even more than, the two clients. You know, Elite and Seven Seven's Trek, so two of the largest companies in Nepal, and they're clearly fighting to be the the leader especially in supporting a lot of these records climbers which the first american woman you can imagine climbing all 14 8, meter peaks even with these massive asterisks like fixed ropes sherpa and oxygen like and helicopters it will still be a notable deal and we will see many more of these coming from other countries um and then they'll be trying to do it faster and then they'll be trying to do it without oxygen it will continue and you know, so what I think about is, you know, this summer, one of my mountain guides on on the Via Ferrata, so the safest type of guiding possible, twisted an ankle, right, in an incident while guiding. And OSHA sent an inspector for three days to Alpaglow Expeditions to analyze why the accident happened and all the things that need to be put into our system to make this job safer. And obviously, none of us want that American level of red tape and complication and mountain guiding. But that's what I want to see. All these companies owning the fact that they had an accident and taking the time to analyze and understand how it happened and how it can be avoided in the future. And if that soul searching is not happening and that report is not coming out, then that's where I think we have a major problem. It's like, how can we hold companies accountable for the accidents of workers. Now, of course, the accidents of the clients is important, but it's the accidents of the workers that I'm most interested in. And we need to learn how to make this work safe or as safe as possible for our shop and mountain guides.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you um, tried to separate those two things because as you were talking about risk and all these like highfalutin ideas about, you know, having the, you know, taking on risk and adventure and the benefits and of all of that. I was thinking about just how all of that falls apart as soon as you're paying someone there to be there with you and and kind of do the decision making and take on the risks and so forth. And, and I'm glad you carved that, that exception out. And I think that it is just a kind of a muddied, uh, yeah, at least ethically muddied predicament that people find themselves in with in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. the, The influence of money just makes everything a lot, a lot more complicated.
2: Absolutely. And specifically, I think the muddiness is happening in these larger expeditions to to places like Nepal, Tibet, Pakistan, because every person who goes to these mountains, including the professional athletes, whether it's me or Topo or it was Uli or, you know, so many professional athletes that climb in the Himalaya, everyone has to hire a, a logistics agent, someone to take care of their permits, someone to take care of their transportation, and someone to provide things like cooks at base camp. So everyone hires a commercial operator, but at that point, I don't think those local companies have any responsibility to what happens above base camp on the mountain. And therefore, the athletes or the climbers can take as much risk as they want above base camp on the mountain. What's happened is these logistics type arrangements are converting into mountain guiding but then not being clear about what mountain guiding means and who holds the decision-making power or responsibility. So Andrew, you've heard plenty from me, like my soapbox around like IFMGA certification, AMGA certification, and what being a mountain guide means and i i would argue that we and the mainstream media and even perhaps you guys sometimes are like misusing the term guide or mountain guide like tenjin and mingmar were high altitude workers but they are not qualified mountain guides and so the question of whether they could make the decision to turn around their client i don't think that's even in their job description because it takes years to build the decision making and judgment and ability to stand up against clients and money to say no. And so as these uh, logistics companies have moved into a role of mountain guiding, I think things have gotten very muddy and we need to re-clarify those roles and make sure like these two clients might have very well understood what the setup was. But when a new client comes to the Himalaya, do they think they're signing up for mountain guiding when they're what they're actually signing up for is logistics support?
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, just to, to add a little more color to this story. So Elite Expeditions is who Anna was with. That's NIMS Purge's company. I've researched a little bit on um, a separate story about uh, just kind of NIMS's role in, in the Nepali scene. And he's. I've heard uh, several Nepali cl- climbers um, tell me that NIMS is kind of single-handedly responsible for bolstering an, uh, this whole economy uh via his celebrity and fame and and international you know recognition for his um his achievement a few years ago and he's also he's done that simply by making um uh, making it possible to do the 8000 meter peaks as quickly as possible which i think is appealing to a certain type of client uh from the west who wants to have um have that kind of new new tick under their belt you know it's not necessarily enough to just say you've climbed Everest but now it's like you have to climb all 14 8,000 meter peaks and ha- have done it within a year and those approaches are are kind of being pioneered I think by elite expeditions and maybe some of these mm-hmm. other outfitters in in Nepal and um, and using kind of questionable tactics and perhaps employing people who, who don't have that. That pedigree of certification that you're just describing. I, I don't know if there's a question there. I just find it interesting and look at <laughs> your response on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I and first of all, I think it's important for people to know maybe I haven't climbed over there. Nepal is now an IFMGA country. So Nepali high altitude workers can become IFMGA certified mountain guides. And in fact, dozens are becoming IFMGA certified mountain guides. But in order for Nepal to stay in the system along with 30-something other countries, the standard of training has to be equivalent to what's available in Europe. And Swiss, you know, the Swiss, of course, are in charge. And so, you know, they'll go over and kind of like uh, check that the level of training and it equals the same thing around the world. So this is available. And so it's not about, you know, Nepali guides versus American guides or something like that. It's about certification versus non-certification. Um, But obviously, certification takes years and uh, is quite difficult to attain. And right now, I think there's a rush to just as much business as possible, the Nepali companies. And so that is leading to perhaps, you know, not meeting these standards. Um, But what do you think about this?
1: But the second component of it, which is that, you know, there's It's great for business for people to want to climb as as many of the 8,000 meter peaks as possible. I mean, that's like, you're not just like paying someone X dollars to do Everest. It's now, you know, 5X dollars to do Everest and five (laughs) other peaks. So, I mean, what's what's up with that?
2: Yeah. And and before even going... Today, like, yes, I think it's excellent that these companies are bringing more business to Nepal, more work to Nepal, more money to Nepal. I do believe more people in the mountains is a good thing. That's something we could probably debate about all day long. But like I, I, my entire career has been about persuading people to like human powered travel to high places is good for individuals and it's good for communities and it's good for the planet ultimately. And so I'm not gonna back away from that now. I think more people is good. We need to find ways to allow more people to be in these places while maintaining safety, ethics, cleanliness, things like that. And those are challenges that like Europe has been through and the US has been through, but Nepal, Pakistan and Tibet are maybe not taking on yet or at least not taking on at the level I think they could and should we as the people going to those mountains have to try to demand those things to push that forward, I think. But in terms of multiple peaks back to back to back, like, it's rad, right? Like, I mean, in 2011, I climbed three 8,000 meter peak summits back to back to back over two weeks. And I think that was the first time it was done along with two Sherpa teammates. And like, That was considered so next level, right? And now it's like, you only did three peaks in one season. What's wrong with you? But the thing is, like, of course I wanted to do that. Once you've gone all the way, you've spent all that money, you've done all the acclimatization and hard work. If the weather happens to be good and the mountain conditions are good, why wouldn't you try to push your body to do more peaks? So I don't have any problem with it. I think we should all be very honest with ourselves that it's a different form of mountaineering or alpinism than perhaps what Reinhold was doing or Uli was doing or so many other people we can name. Like it's as much a logistics challenge As it is a physical challenge. But as long as we're honest about the kind of like asterisks next to our name, the things we use to make it possible, I think it's rad. I mean, just like I think it's rad for a client to come and climb Everest on supplemental oxygen with a mountain guide, with Sherpa, with fixed ropes, with the trail broken for them. Like, my goal in kind of guiding these peaks is that I want each person on the mountain to reach a limit as close to their human limit as they can to where they potentially learn more about themselves. And for a client that might be one peak on eight liter flow oxygen. And for a Sherpa that might be going up the mountain every day with a 40 pound pack. And for you know, topo nena, that might be no oxygen on a new route. But all of us are reaching that point where we learn something about ourselves. And I don't feel like we need to define what that is. If that is for some clients, multiple peaks with oxygen and support in chained, rad. Like I guarantee Kristen Harila went home a different person than she was when she went there after 92 days. And she took a bunch of risk because there's just not that many good summit days now that risk, if she was paying people, that's where I get concerned. But not in the goal itself. I think it's rad.
0: So Adrian, I have a problem that you don't have a problem with any of this. Um, <laughs> go <laughs> for like, it. Let's go. You know, I, mean, I just like <laughs> I just find it so strange that and I, and I realize that it's like this come one come all namaste sort of like attitude. But that and I mentioned this. I don't know if you you listen to that one, but this idea that the eight thousand meter peak climbing community started to accept these quote unquote records as something to be admired I just like I have such a problem with that because it's like I I'm I'm like racking my brain for any other sport where a complete novice can come into the sport and then and then quote unquote set a record like you know like I just I I think tomorrow I'm going to go, you know, do those vaults that Simone Biles does so I can like set a record, you know, it's like, there's nowhere else that you don't have to A, do the work, but then B, be admired for the work. And, and I, I just think it like, it just turns this sacred thing, this, this pursuit that we we've, we've, you know, volumes have been written on into this total joke. I mean, it's like, a, it's like who can eat the most hot dogs and then who climbed the 14 peaks the fastest like those two things are like right there in the guinness book of world records next to each other and i it's just like the whole community grumbles about it privately but in in the face of it they have to say hooray you know it's like yes good job on this sense of like what you said you did this thing that's rad and you 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 probably learned something but she the logistics that she thing sucks, it all, and
1: she's not doing it anymore.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah, she learned that she didn't like climbing enough to keep doing it, which is like just puts the exclamation yeah. point on the whole thing. And it's just like, well, the other thing I'd say is that this pursuit, in and of itself, is clearly causing these problems. I mean, the logistics part of it means that all those pains that you take at your expedition to leave the mountain cleaner than you you got to it, um, which is something that you just said. I mean all those things kind of have to go out the window on these these fast sort of things. I mean there I just I mean you you can do your rebuttal. I just find it so strange that in a in a sort of sport or pursuit you love and everyone seems to love so much that they've just let it you know like no standards like okay you get a gold medal Simone Biles and oh. you over there that you know managed to balance on the balance beam for five minutes you get a gold medal too <laughs> you know like that's kind of like Chris Collusion a leotard
1: of on the balance beam also gets
0: <laughs> so anyway I, yeah it's sort but of a I, cultural I guess it's like a cultural question of like yes but in my mind like yes it's but, great those, that you've pursued these things for these reasons but at what cost to the culture at what cost that's kind of the thing that i i I think i
2: think you and i probably (laughs) absolutely agree on so much of this my my son's not getting any gold medals for you know just crawling um he's slow he's behind the goals (laughs) he doesn't deserve any medals um like (laughs) like This is where I think I separate like I don't think any of these things should be getting the media attention and sponsorship dollars that they are necessarily, you know, I I think I was one of the early ones to say like NIMS's accomplishment was like really cool from a logistical point of view, but not from a mountaineering or alpinism point of view. That was true then, it is true now, it will continue to be true. And so... Like, what I want to see is those asterisks next to people's names that very clearly define this is what was accomplished here versus this is what was accomplished here. If you were rescued, if you used dexamethasone, if you used oxygen, if you used fixed ropes, you know, they're all asterisks to your ascent, which differentiate what, let's say, Messner did in the 70s and what's being done today. But I do think both can coexist just like. Top rope climbing can exist in rifle, and we can support people coming out of the gym and having their first outdoor climbing experiences and those experiences changing them right next to someone putting in the months or years of work to build a new route and then to make the first ascent of it. Like, I don't think we should be so elitist that only one of those can be supported. But of course, we need to explain what those differences are, we need to be honest about them. And we need to also, you know, make sure that there's safety around both safety for the environment and safety for communities, workers and other climbers on the mountain. So there are a lot of problems with how climbing is currently going, because I think we're in this like mealy mouthed mix where there's some claims of one thing being the other thing. But it doesn't mean I think one shouldn't exist. We just need to figure out how to explain it to the mainstream. And the big problem here is suddenly that the mainstream is, not problem, it's an amazing thing. The mainstream is suddenly interested in climbing, right? No one cared 30 years ago, and maybe that's how it should have been, but now people care and everyone's looking for the next story.
1: I was gonna just um, add a little more color to this story as well. Um, Anna was kind of critiqued as this new climber, like I don't think she had, had much climbing experience, but she was on track to being the first woman to do the fourteen eight thousanders. And Gina had been working on this for maybe a, a few months or a year more than her, and I think that that's she kind of saw this person coming up on her heels, and that kind of created this. This competition that spiraled a little out of control, and and we should also just credit um, Explorers Web and Angela Benavides, who with the reporting on a lot of this, which is kind of informing my knowledge of this situation. She did; she's a great journalist in in this space. But so, I mean, there was this um, sense that these these both of these women were kind of not had no experience really whatsoever, and they were on track to to getting this this you know record and for what we we clearly live in a culture that does value that i mean and without that culture there there's reason to believe that these two women and perhaps more importantly their sherpas that they were hiring to climb with them um might still be alive and um what's interesting in this article on explorer's web is now the part the american woman with the who's closest to doing this, you know, quote unquote record is this woman named Tracy Metcalf and she's got nine summits under her belt. She was on the mountain this day and, um, you know, was climbing much slower and and therefore her life was, uh, spared because she wasn't high enough to be part of these avalanches. But she had this great quote, which I'll just read quickly. Um, I climb for the joy of climbing. I've never been interested in records. She says, I do not like this record fever at all. It, I feel it detracts from the experience of climbing. I used to enjoy all parts of the expedition, the trek in, doing rotations, getting to know the team, etc. Now everyone is in such a big rush. I also think there are people climbing now who are in it for perhaps the wrong reasons. Things like social media attention. Question. Like I said before, I enjoy the beauty of the mountains, and this is the reason why I climb. And the competitions do not sit well with me. I, if you agree with that assessment. Um, what do you think guide companies can do to kind of address this, this kind of aspect? Because I think that human—I mean, this is like a human nature thing. Like people are going to be drawn to, you know, finding infamy and and notoriety, especially when it's so you know easy to attain. You don't have to be the Simone Biles of mountaineering to to get get a record like this. So, what can guide companies do to kind of? assess their their clientele and maybe create a healthier culture
2: so first of all i'm not not sure that i do agree that we should be valuing people's reasons for climbing and so like you know i we see this in rock climbing too where someone's maybe chasing grades or something like that and somehow we value that as less pure reason to climb than the joy of it or something like that it's like if someone wants to go after a record that they value they should go and do that so i don't totally agree with tracy like i respect tracy and like tracy but like That's one reason for climbing, as she described it. It's not the only reason for climbing. And I don't think we should be putting value judgments on why people are climbing, because we don't know people's interior motives. We're making these judgments based on their social media and things like that. So I disagree with that. But with that said, we dramatic, like I think I've been saying for 10 years now that guiding on 8,000 meter peaks is at a crossroads. So i don't know whether i can still say we're at a crossroads or if we've already walked down a path that like i think is the wrong path and that worries me um but we do need sensible regulation around our industry and i want to believe that it will be the governments to place those regulations in place but if it's not then it needs to be either a consortium of the companies or the clients themselves requiring these things. But those like common sense regulations that I see are first of all like experience levels of, at every level of the trip so the clients should have required experience levels before going to an 8000 meter peak and before going to everest for alpine glow expeditions you need 5 6000 meter peak and one 7000 7, meter peak and one 8000 meter peak before you can go to everest it's just common sense but it's not just the clients the mountain guides need to be IFMGA or AMGA certified And then the Sherpa, the high altitude workers, if they're not mountain guides, then they need to have gone through Kumbu climbing center certification. So the Alex Lowe Foundation set up a school in Forte in the Kumbu, and it has very clear level one and level two certifications for high altitude workers. And we should be requiring that our high altitude workers are going through those levels of training. And so training should just be required at every level. And then an expedition leader. Why should we be allowing expedition leaders who have only been climbing for three years or five years or whatever it might be? There should be common sense regulations for what a company needs to be. And then there should be consequences when there are safety breaches for those companies. And then, of course, there's the the the, the environmental stuff like if you're leaving tents on the mountain because it's cheaper to build buy new tents the next season if you're not pulling down all your human waste in wag bags if you're not you know removing all your trash like that company should just be barred there should be consequences these are hard things to meet but i think common sense regulations like that will help the industry and we'll stop seeing maybe some of the decision-making that's leading to these accidents. And there are good examples of this in other countries, um, you know, on other peaks that are incredibly popular, like the and Mont Blanc in Europe or Aconcagua in South America. These are mountains that used to be a free-for-all and no longer are. And we've seen dramatically better safety uh, levels of safety and levels of uh, ethics on the mountain.
0: When you start talking about certifications for for the guides and and also um you know these regulations in especially the certification processes coming from from the west, I mean, do you get pushback about you know the the sort of paradigm of of western climbing and imposing their sort of rules on this place that they've always imposed their rules on? If you get, I mean, part of NIMS's push and and I think some of these other in-country guiding companies have been like, now we're doing it instead of, you know, working underneath these Western climbers and, and this is our place now and now we get to be the best among the mountains. And so I feel like there would be this automatic pushback against ideas from the West coming in to regulate these new companies that, um you know, have their sort of own rules. It's, it's actually... Reminiscent of when the AMGA started here in the United States, and many American guiding companies were like, "Who are you? And you're doing what now? And you're trying to tell us how to guide?" Do do you feel that as far as like trying to get some level of regulation in place that um, comes from the outside yeah. in in Nepal?
2: I absolutely do, you know, feel that sensitivity, and I think it's really important to address and acknowledge. Like, I, I think it's fantastic that this industry that used to be completely run by foreign companies is now dominated by nepali companies i see that as progress and yet i do think we need to balance that with kind of like experience and lessons learned through decades and i do think it's possible to do both again i a lot of with a lot of these things i look at another seven summit this mountain called akintagua in Argentina. And Aconcagua is incredibly popular. It's not a very difficult mountain. It used to be run all by foreign companies. And today, probably 70 to 80% of the business is Argentinian companies, Argentinian IFMGA certified guides. And the mountain is today an incredibly clean place when in the early 2000s, Alpenglow wouldn't even run trips to Aconcagua for a decade because it was so gross and dangerous. And so, like, I do think there's a way to allow for the transition to the local companies while still recognizing that people won't want to climb this mountain if it becomes a, a disaster zone and that there is an example of that this fall on Manaslu this fall it's estimated to have 30% fewer climbers than last year And I think that's directly from the shit show that was last year's season and a recognition that we had gone beyond the line. Like we had passed a line of what's reasonable on these mountains in terms of ethics and safety. And that differentiates from what used to always happen. Every year there was more deaths on Everest. The following year there would be more climbers because it was seen as being more difficult and that makes it a more valuable goal. But there is a transition now going on that people are not proud of what they're seeing. So we do have to balance uh, growing and empowering local companies with, I think, these ideas of ethics and sustainability in the sport.
0: You just mentioned how you know when there was more deaths on Everest, it actually got more popular. And I think the lore of climbing and mountaineering has always been about risk, and and there's sort of this heroic quality to to actually going off and dying in the mountains. You know, it was it was exemplified in some of Twite's writings back in the day. Sure. Um, famously, Rob Slater said that you know it was summit or death on K two, and and he he got the latter. Unfortunately. What, what about that culture and also maybe about this culture that um, I think is an extension of that where it's it's all, you know, no holds barred. Like if you have to climb past someone who's in dire straits, you do it. Um, and that, that's always capturing the media's attention when that happens. But it, it seems as though we kind of like that's a, a terror like, or the culture is kind of like it's a terrible thing, but it's a necessary thing. Because those people can't be helped, or we, I couldn't have done anything anyway. And 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 that that is such this strange part of that culture that you know. Again, I love my analogies, but you know, it's it just doesn't fit anywhere else in climbing that you would you would literally like see someone in dire straits, even if they were clearly not going to live. You wouldn't stop what you were doing. That's all wrapped up in this sort of like. You die on these summits. It's just what happens, right. you know. Right. Um, what, what do you think about that culture? Has it changed? Where did it come from? You know, in the in the sort of back alleys talk, is is are you guys just as appalled by these these goings on as as the rest of us are?
2: Yeah. So, couple of different things there. I mean, I right. I do think like mountaineering has risk. We've already talked a little bit about mm-hmm. that, and I do think like part of the draw of mountaineering, alpinism, big mountains is specifically that risk. Like I think we all know as we, you know, being quite privileged, we've all been lucky enough and most of our clients and most of the people you see on 8,000 Meter Peaks have been quite privileged to remove a lot of risk from human life. But I actually think there's a deep, deep need and desire for risk in human life and and especially in certain individuals, right? And those individuals back in the day might've gone, uh, you know, chosen other ways or not even had to choose. They would have, you know, been the people taking the most risk in their community or society just to survive. And today those people need to find other outlets and mountaineering and climbing is one of those outlets. So I understand the desire for risk and kind of like the, chase after what it's more dangerous that makes it more exciting and i think there are plenty of people on this planet and if an individual chooses to take risk whether it's base jumping or or climbing a big mountain that's okay provided they're not unduly putting other people at risk to go after and search out those things so that's that's my thought on why risk and why climbing but in terms of like Stepping over a body to reach the summit and things like this. This is an issue that has been an issue throughout my career in the mountains. And like one of the things I've learned to do is really talk to my teams and my climbers who have paid a lot of money to be on these mountains that at the end of the day, they're going to remember turning around and failing to summit a mountain, but saving a life far more deeply than they're going to remember standing on the summit of whatever mountain they went to. On a beautiful sunny day and taking their selfie and calling their mom like i can speak to that myself having been in situations where i've saved a life or been part of a team saving a life those are the most memorable experiences of my life in the mountains so we talk about that as a team and we kind of have like a contract and understanding that that may be a part of their expedition with that said There's developing an unfairness, I think, on clients. Because let's say my clients pay $85,000 to go to Everest. And my team has an expedition doctor, an incredibly strong Sherpa, and IFMGA mountain guides, and 30% more oxygen than we need. And then all we do, all expedition, (laughs) is give away those resources to other teams who paid $30,000 per person. And my clients do Fairly get pissed off, right? Why is this guy that they paid so much money for spending half of their season helping other teams who paid nothing? So there is a conflict there. As budget companies make poor decisions and put people at risk, it sucks and it's not fair. So it's not as easy as someone sitting at home saying, I Mm -hmm. would never not help a person it is not that ethically clear
0: no clearly because i mean it's uh, you know I, I realize that that when there's those giant conga lines up there that you know you could basically spend your your whole season just being the ambulance you know just being the because of so many people who are so un- inexperienced and and things going wrong up there there
2: is a solution to this specific issue right like denali has a team of rangers who does rescues All of Europe has rescue teams. Akin now has a rescue team supported by a helicopter. Like Nepal and Pakistan need highly trained teams of Sherpa supported by a paramedic or expedition doctor stationed on mountains doing rescues. And that could also become the team that says this team out here is having an undue number of rescues and we're going to ban them or find them or stop them.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to push back on one thing you said, Adrian, about, you know, not being able to make heads or tails of reasons why we climb or be too judgmental about that. But I mean, I look at the story about Gina and Anna, and it it seems clear that Anna and Mi'kmar had died in the first avalanche, and, and Gina and Tenjin continued on knowing that this had just happened. And um, where, you know, unconfirmed sources say that they were told to stop and turn around, but they continued climbing and and subsequently paid the price for that. I mean, I think that if that, if the mentality of being motivated by records puts you, the consequences of that put you in a situation where you make decisions like that and you're kind of so um, cold about the, the immediate, the, the death of someone who you were, you know, who's your colleague in a way. I, I, I just find that to be in and of itself a reason to just say that that's a bad reason to climb.
2: I hear you. I I just struggle to say I know what the thought process was there or what conversation happened amongst those people. Um, I, I can feel like definitely like I'm uncomfortable with that situation as you've just described it, right? There is no doubt in my mind. If someone was killed on a mountain in front of me in an avalanche, I would be thinking about rescue and, and, uh, and the safety of everyone around me and the fact that, and I would try, I believe I would have the humility to say, I don't know that much better that the route I can choose will be safe in that avalanche terrain when that happened to those people. But I, I just think we should be cautious about assuming that they made that decision because of a record or because of heartlessness or something else. I don't know these people and I wasn't there. And what I do know is when I've seen avalanches on the mountain, like it is, or or these decisions, these great, like it is incredibly difficult to make a decision to turn around. Even for me, as someone who has lost so many friends in the mountains and spent decades guiding these mountains and has so much I want to come home for those decisions are heartbreakingly hard and I just can't I don't feel appropriate to judge that decision having not been there and not even met these two people
1: yeah well fair enough I mean you can we'll link to the story and people can decide for themselves whether there's a judgment there to be made
0: unfortunately you can write the story because had they summited I think much of the world would have would have found that to be awful that you just kept going. Then you, you can almost a thousand percent be sure that their, their storyline was that they did it for Anna. You know, like we, we, you know, you know what I mean? Like I can, I'm not even a, a schooled PR person and I'm like, boom, you got your storyline right there. You know, you kept going for her, you knew what it meant to her. And so we kept going. Like it it, it was just a mess that was was about to happen and it's such a culmination of what we were seeing of the last few years with this, the record seeking, um, it's a terrible, uh, it's a terrible sort of final storm of this. Well, maybe not final, but but um, you know, to have two people racing to the summit, literally, I mean, everybody, well, maybe they, no, they were. Like that's the difference between me and everyone else is I'm just gonna say what I think, not not qualify it, but they were racing.
1: Well, that's the, that's the interesting counterfactual to think is if they had both succeeded in reaching the summit, you know, and it, it would have been this like interesting success story. But climbing and risk are such interesting things where if you survive the risk, you're a hero. And if you don't, then you're the fool, you know, and um and there's that kind of um, analysis is. I think wrong on both ends, like making people heroes when they've, you know, been reckless and with their decision-making is, is just as bad as kind of, you know, being the Monday morning quarterback who, who says I would have done differently and these people should have changed their decision-making. Um, so
2: yeah. Yes. But Andrew, we can argue about whether or not this was groundbreaking, but like, Actually, I don't think we'd argue. we probably both end on the same side of that coin. But would any of the world's great mountaineering accomplishments have been done without reckless decision-making? I would argue no. It takes that recklessness to achieve great things in the Alpine environment.
1: Well, one of the interesting things about records that I've been thinking about, you know, especially with regards to Messner losing his record, I wrote a piece about that um, last week, which you guys um, both read. But, you know, he he didn't set out necessarily to do the record. You know, this wasn't like that idea of like setting records was not top of mind. It was it was um, it was about something else. And so I think that this like this record mentality is kind of a recent invention that is post a lot of the original exploration and explorers um, ideas. But maybe maybe that's maybe that's wrong.
2: I do hope that what we're still trying to do within alpinism is exploration. I think it's just more about exploration of human limits, which arguably it always was. It's not so easy to find a new mountain or a new route today with reasonable objective danger. But by going after things like FKTs or enchainments or ski descents or paragliding descents, we are still exploring, like, kind of the edge of human limit. Um, And I still love that in these different forms. And I still believe that most people going out and doing these things are doing it because of that exploration of the limits with their teammates, with an unknown, uncertain outcome. Now, some of the things gaining mainstream media attention might not be those things, but I do believe that spirit's alive and well.
1: All right. Well, we've talked a lot about reasons not to climb, but why don't we end on a more positive note? Why don't you tell us just about what, like, why do you climb these big peaks? What What do you love about it? What's the, you know, not, I'm not talking about guiding them or anything. I'm just talking, what was What was the original interest for you and, and what what are your experiences on the kind of purest and most positive level?
2: I appreciate the opportunity to end on a positive note yeah because (laughs) there is such beauty in these experiences and i've obviously dedicated my life to them um for for me like having a singular goal that a team of people has to work together to accomplish with some level of selflessness um and with an uncertain outcome where each person is challenged to their limits physically mentally and emotionally like those are the most vibrant experiences of my life and they're where i formed the deepest bonds with people i love and uh I, i i believe there's an incredible power to that and i hope people continue to try to find those experiences
1: John Burrier is a climber, drummer, and friend of the pod from Baltimore. Here he is playing percussions on a track called Colton's Pinky Crusher with the instrumental band Le Rhinoceros.
0: You've just reached the end of another Patreon episode of The Runout. If you're receiving your runout fix through the Patreon feed, it means that you've decided to live your days as a giver and supporter, which is a beautiful attitude that will lift your spirits and draw an admiring eye from your peers and loved ones. For this, we commend you because we wouldn't be able to do this without your contribution. Kudos and mazel tov. And if you'd like to reach out with questions, concerns, praise, or criticism... Or even contribute some content to Buddy Spray or the Final Bit. Email Andrew at Andrew at Podcast dot com or Chris at Chris at Podcast dot com. Although let's face it, emailing Andrew is probably a better bet. <music>